You're listening to Fair Market Value, Christie's Art Market Insights Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Fair Market Value, Christie's Art Market Insights Podcast. We're so happy to have you here. I'm your co-host, Joey Quigley. I'm here in the studio with Joanna Ostrom. Hello, everyone. And we have a great episode today, Joanna. We do. We are so thrilled to be joined by our colleague, Adrian Meyer. He's the global head of private sales and the co-chairman of Impressionist and Modern Art. And we have a lot of interesting topics to cover with Adrian today. Yeah, we can cover private sales. We can cover auctioneering. Adrian is one of the best auctioneers at Christie's. He has some great stories about his career growth, how he got to where he is today. And also some career advice. And some career advice for us all, I think. So without further ado, let's kick this off and welcome Adrian to the podcast. Welcome, Adrian. Hi, Adrian. Could you tell us a little bit about what does a day in the life of Adrian Meyer look like? Uh, Joey, the, the answer is I have no clue. Of, <laughs> of what, uh, no, it's true. I just have no idea what's going to happen that day. Why? Because every day from another is different. It can be a phone call leading to a new auction consignment. It can be a client popping in through the front door and asking what we have in the vault. Or it can be the request to hop on a plane for a visit which needs to occur before the end of the week for tax reasons. So we need to be at the service of our clients, you know, on a whim. It's all of the above. And it's obviously interacting with your colleagues across the departments in all capacities. Adrian, we'd love to hear more about how you got to where you are. What was your career path at Christie's and how did you end up in this very interesting and distinguished role at Christie's? You know, it was a combination of factors linked to people I met and random uh, (laughs) uh, moments in my life. I joined Christie's uh, following a phone call from someone called François Curiel. <laughs> he figured in another recent That's podcast true. episode. That's true. He was in Rahul's episode. And Just... It was out of the blue. I was working for another auction house and got this phone call, you know, asking whether there could be something interesting to be done at Christie's. And then it led to a conversation, a meeting, and then a new job in Paris in the furniture field where I was already working. 18th century French furniture. I loved mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I still do. Six years down the road, having spent actually 10 years in the, in the market, I was ready for a new challenge. I was, you know, on ski holidays, too much snow to go outside. And I just thought, you know, what's, what's next? What, what could be the next challenge? And I have always loved modern art. And so I thought, you know, what's going on in New York? I was based in Paris, you know, because that's where many auctions take place. I opened my computer and I, I thought I'd have a look at what the team, you know, even looked like. So I discovered those faces and I, <laughs> I thought they, they look a fun bunch to work with. It really happened that way. So I closed <laughs> the computer and I said, when I come back to Paris, I'm going to speak to the then head of department, Thomas Sidou, mm-hmm. about, you know, this idea I have of perhaps joining, you know, his team if he needed a hand. Never discussed anything, you know, any Picasso with him, any... 20th century, he probably had you know, no clue of what I knew or probably knew I didn't know much. I still thought I would try. There wasn't any harm in trying. So I saw him the first day after the ski holiday. I said, Thomas, if you need some help, I just thought I'd let you know. I'd love to work in your department in New York. 24 hours later, we were in principle in agreement, obviously subject to the then head of department, Connor Jordan, being you know, happy with the idea. So I then met with Connor and that was it. So I owe it a lot to Thomas for having, you know, allowed me such a, a, an audacious jump. You know, this guy in furniture, you're going to have him move to the 20th century department. You know, why is that? So I was very lucky. It's also a great reminder, if you have an idea, raise your hand. It's just incredible that you were able to make that move. I think you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. Things don't come cooked 
to yeah. you. I don't know yeah. if that's an expression. Yeah. You know, pre-cooked, right? But pre-cooked. You gotta, you know, if if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, some people are lucky and they they get something offered to them and good for them. But half of the time, you need to create your own path or to facilitate the, your own evolution. What skills did you have in your previous specialty that were transferable, and mm. what did you need to learn, and how did you learn it? I guess, you know, one skill which is shared by all of us in this room as well is our passion for the job. Right. You mm-hmm. know, if, if you love what you do... and you're, Vigorous head nodding in the room. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you're eager at it, and you just, you know, you breathe your job, and you show a goodwill at doing something else... You know, half of half of the recipe, I think, relies on this, mm. uh, and then potentially that you're not too bad at what you do. That can help too. But if you have the appetite, then then there's no reason someone shouldn't believe in you. That's the way I think. Yeah. And that's why I thought I should ask. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How did you manage that transition? How did you hit the ground running and just? Listen, I was I felt very fortunate uh, to to join a very experienced team. Uh, so I felt very sort of humbled about it because it, I realized the. The chance I was given to have a, a fresh start, right? You know, even though I was at Christie's for some time, and I happened to get along very well with the team, still do today. <laughs> um, and 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 they're an amazing bunch of characters, very different from each other, which mm-hmm. I think creates the richness of, of that department. And I enjoyed getting to know each one of them. And I think that's the beauty of Christie's, and I, I guess of any great corporation, is is to learn and to get from your colleagues. What, what's great about them. Right. You know. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to start this podcast is to share all of our colleagues that we work with so much in the Trust and Estates Department to share how amazing you guys are with, with the whole world. And I, I guess we also have the same thing in Trust and Estates, that each one of us does the job differently, mm-hmm. right? That's one of the great things about it. And you can learn the great things from each person and, and, and how to do things right. What was the process of evolving from this newly minted impressionist and modern art specialist to then leading the private sales team globally? Well, I, listen, it's it's quite simple. I can take anything for granted. I had to build everything again. My clients were people buying Louis the Fifteenth commodes at fifteen thousand euros. I basically didn't have many opportunities to capitalize on in this new field, so mm-hmm. I had to start from scratch. What does that mean? You need to get on the road. I was on the road every other day. I wasn't at my desk doing cold calls, cold visits, going to Midwest, you know, to, to those unexpected cities, which were slightly less, how do you call it, explored, not explored, you know, slightly less uh, yeah. taken care of by my other colleagues who were already on their respective networks. You know, I had to be careful, you know, not, you know, intr- being too intruding on relationships already existing. So I had to create some which did not exist. Mm-hmm. So that meant meeting curators, directors, looking at who the board members were of this local community, and, and therefore uh, beginning new relationships, which actually I'm still fortunate to have today. Mm-hmm. And the irony is many of my relationships were created out of cold calls. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of it's, – it's also quite inspiring wow. to know that you don't need someone to hold your hand yeah. and introduce you to someone. You know, the power of Christie's going – to some place because you know you, you want to meet with someone is extraordinarily strong. So I just used it. And then from there you built those relationships and I know you you had great success in the department. When did you make the move to become a person who was a specialist in private sales? I started quite early doing private sales uh, organically. You know, clients who wanting something I happened to find it in our system. We have such a rich mm-hmm. system of work so I would go to the 
owners ask whether they were willing to sell it at a significant premium. And so it happened sort of naturally. Yeah. And I did it more and more. Why? Because I think there's nothing more thrilling than creating this spark between a buyer mm. and a seller, you know, creating this magic where, you know, that you just you just realize that a transaction is about to happen. Mm-hmm. It's thrilling. Mm-hmm. There's something where you feel somewhat uh, I don't know. There's something. There's something exciting. You're a matchmaker. It. It's matchmaking. Entrepreneurial. Yeah, yeah, it's it's matchmaking. It's, it's it's great fun. So it happened progressively, uh, more and more at slightly higher levels, and and one day my boss, our, our CEO Guillaume Cerruti, five four five years ago, asked me whether I would want to take a more a formal uh, a role in that capacity to take care of all specialties for the group. I, I like challenges. I like being given tasks, <laughs> but also also understanding that someone believes that you can do it. So I I went for it. Yeah, it was a great start. Twenty nineteen, mm. and six months later, <laughs> bang, oh, COVID. Yeah, and then I thought this is the end of it. This is my end. Ciao, ciao, Christes. I'm not going to achieve anything in this new world. And in fact, the COVID environment turned out to be a blessing. Why? Because, you know, who knew what auctions were going to lead to, how they were going to do, no more catalogs, no more exhibitions. Mm -hmm. People needed a sense of security. Mm -hmm. Some clients still needed to sell their works, Mm -hmm. but they needed to know what they were going to get for the sale. And so they connected even more and more often with private sales. So it was a sort of very useful launching ramp for private sales to get to the better level uh, as where we are today. So we've talked a little bit about private sales in terms of matchmaking and the spark and everything like that. I wonder if you could walk our our audience, our listeners, through what exactly is a private sale at Christie's? What does this mean? How is that different than auction? Could you maybe just break it down, the very basics? Well, Joe, it's very simple. A private sale is a, a way by which a client can buy a work of art or a piece of jewelry at Christie's on a whim. They don't want to wait for the next auction. They just want it now for a wedding gift or just because they, they're redoing their home and there's a picture missing above the mantelpiece, but they're having a big party the next week. They just want it now. And you are going to connect with Christie's and their private sales department. And you're going to say that you're looking for this particular work of art, which we are then going to find. So that means that what you're looking for, you will get now. Maybe not now the next day or the next week, but with a very, very uh, time-sensitive nature. That's what's the private sale. It's you're connecting a buyer with a seller, whether the work of art is already for sale or not. And what are the advantages of a private sale? What's good about private sales that you don't necessarily have at auction are very simple things. First of all, the discrete nature of it. If you sell your Picasso or your Kelly handbag or your Patek Philippe, no one needs to know about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. The second aspect of it is the controlled nature of the price, of the process. When you sell at auction, you have no clue where you're going to land, how well it's going to do. Of course, in, at Christie's, you know it's going to do great, but you're never quite sure. That's what makes the exciting side of auctions, but also its unpredictable outcome. Mm-hmm. If you sell privately, you're going to decide the price at which you sell your work of art or your piece of jewelry. Last one I should say for the seller is the fact that you can expect a premium on the work that you're selling because of the freshness that the buyer will retain Mm. by acquiring it away from the public market. Perhaps you could speak about how private sales can actually enhance our 
auction process and make a better ecosystem for our clients and collectors? Absolutely. Some, you know, some clients are actually willing to capitalize on both because both venues are actually complementary. Yeah. Some clients decide to shoot for the stars privately with one or two clients, because great news if we do happen to know this buyer who's going to buy it right away for a great price. And if it doesn't work out, we preserve the freshness of this work. What we mean by freshness is the fact that the work hasn't been seen by the general public, the open market. And then after having tried perhaps two or three clients, we suggest doing what we call a rollover to auction. So the client has benefited in the first place of a potential private sale opportunity at the highest level. And if it doesn't work out, it then is included in our next available auction and open to the broader market who then competes against each other. So, Adrian, I, I don't know if I can ask this question, but we might cut it. But <laughs> uh, I know that private sales are really what the dealers, kind of the art dealers, the gallerists do. Are they mad at us for, for, for this channel growing so much at, at an, in an auction house? Why would someone go to us at an auction house rather than go to a, one of the, let's say, top three or four dealers in the world? Well, listen, I hope they're not mad at us. One of the reasons being that we happen to work a lot with them mm -hmm. in private sales. The reason being that what does differentiate Christie's from the trade is precisely the fact that we conduct auctions. And what does auctions provide to Christie's is this invaluable intel which allows us to know who's out there right now who's willing to pay the highest price mm. for your Liechtenstein, your Fontana, your Pollock. You know, so having this, this edge over the trade because of our auction business, which is the fundamental part of our business, is one reason why a client could prefer to, in a case, to test the waters at Christie's for a private sale. Um, and once again, we do work with the trade in doing these private sales, whether on the selling or on the buying side. So actually, I see it as a very a great synergy of both activities and with the trade in particular. Adrian, I know you're, you're one of my personal favorite auctioneers. I, I should, I should I continue sending checks. Yeah, sending exactly. Checks exactly. Uh, I would be remiss to not ask you about your amazing career as an auctioneer and how you got started in that and how you grew all the way up to taking the best sales that Christie's has, has ever had. So, Well, listen, as a fellow auctioneer that you are, Joey, <laughs> uh, I'm sure you, you, you share the same uh, adrenaline that encourages you to take these sales. The excitement of taking a sale is probably at the genesis of it all. Uh, why? I guess it's, first of all, for the uh, unpredictable nature of it. You never know. You never, never know how it's going to happen. You don't know if people are going to show up in the room, if they're going to bid, if the lines are going to break, if people are going to, your bids are going to come online. Uh, there's this very exciting aspect of, of the activity, which uh, has always, you know, encouraged me to go there. As a kid, when I was seven years old, I discovered the auction world with my dad in this Paris auction house called Drouot. And it was a total revelation. I had no idea it existed. It was a, a, a sort of fascinating uh, uh, environment, and I saw that people were making their living out of it. And so I thought, you know, from then on, that's what I wanted to do. So what I did was when I joined Christie's, I asked a few years down the road if I could take auction. So I went through the process of being part of a how do you call it, a, a, a group who was uh, pre-selected and then a second group who was uh, short, smaller, and a third group which was smaller over two days in London uh, at, at the then South Kensington. 
And um, and I was then given, you know, the chance to take auctions, which I did progressively, starting selling Japanese ceramics and and and, and moving along. So it, it, it was a, a, a great journey going from the London sales then to Paris when I got my French uh, auctioneer's license. And then it let me take sales, uh, yeah, in a few of our offices. Do you recall your, your kind of favorite moments on the podium? I'll, I'll te- I, I, listen, I'll tell you my perhaps my, my least, well, <laughs> I don't know if it's my least favorite, but my, 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 one of my big uh, uh, hiccups, I, was, I once got an email from Virgilio Garza, who was uh, our, our former head of Latin American art paintings, asking me if I would be willing, if I would be willing, to take the evening sales for Latin American. I mean, I was, you know, I was uh, in awe of receiving such an email. <laughs> so I jumped and I said, of course, with pleasure, what a treat. And so I was excited, counting the weeks, the days leading to the auction. And at that time, the Latin American art paintings evening sales, which you may remember, were very festive. You had over 300 people coming to Rockefeller Center in their high heels, tuxedo. You know, it, it, was, it was a big event. And so... I went up there in my suit. I went to the rostrum, and I see this room from, from you know the big lively crowd. And I thought I would connect with them. You know, when you're an auctioneer, as you know, Joey, it's very important to connect with the audience. So I thought, you know, it's actually quite nice to to speak to them, you know, in Spanish. You know, after all. So the auction begins, and I say Buena sera. and and all of a sudden I see the the room <laughs> laughing their head off. <laughs> And I realized I'd just spoken to them in Italian. <laughs> and, so, and so, of course, slightly unsettled, which is the last thing an auctioneer needs right. to be when you need to control your room. I said, you know, I was testing you. You know, I was trying to, trying to get back into a, a normal position. But that was, that was awful. I didn't dare look at Virgilio, who had decided that I could try and do the, get the job done. But so that, that was one of my, the moments I remember quite uh, vividly. Adrian, you've had such a varied and long career. Is there one piece of advice or guiding principle you can share with us? I guess one of them, especially, you know, when you when you start from scratch uh, in a new category, is to to always show up. You never know what's out there. Mm. You never know. You go to some place for a client visit. It's actually the person you're going to meet on the plane yeah. who's going to be the real the real price of your journey because. He has a Picasso, which, you know, you weren't even expecting to discuss. You know, it's it's uh, going to a dinner. Uh, but in fact, it's it's not the guest of honor uh, that you're going to, you know, earn brownie points with. But it's actually the person uh, that you're going to meet that, that evening who happens to have no not have any relationship with Christie's and you're going to create one. It's it's those instances whereby you I believe, very much believe in the ripple effect. Mm-hmm. You do something for a particular purpose, and it's something else that you will get out of it. Do you have a good example of a time you showed up that yielded great I guess, benefit? Well, one one guess which I was actually almost on the fence of not doing. Uh, I got an email from a friend of mine when I was in France for the holidays, and he said, "Okay, it's going to sound weird, but." I think there's something you should, something interesting for you. You should just follow my advice. There's this client, he'd like to meet with you. He's very discreet. Uh, so I can't give you his name. I can't tell you where he lives. I can't tell you what it's about. But can you just meet him at this uh, tall station on the highway Saturday morning? Uh, you know, at 10 a.m. is fine. So that was probably December 24, two days later, you know. Um, and he'll take you somewhere. So I'm here. I'm in France for a week. December 24th. December 24th. Really? I mean, are you kidding me? Adrian, trust me. 
I said, okay, well, listen, thanks so much for thinking of me. Of course, as I take the car, meet this client at the start station. He, he asked me, almost my ID. I said, yes, that, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, follow me. So I follow the guy for an hour. We arrive in this sort of random city outside of Paris. And he makes me climb up the, the building. We arrive in this very modest apartment. And there in the living room, sitting on an armchair, is his elderly mother. And it turns out that this lady turned out to be a descendant of the artist Claude Monet. And no one ever knew that Monet had heirs. He had two sons who never were known or recorded as having had children. Mm. And this woman was an heir from an illegitimate child of one of oh. two Monet's sons. And the outcome of that was that throughout his lifetime, Michel Monet gave to his illegitimate daughter souvenirs of his father, mm. works on paper by Monet, paintings by Monet, mm. but also watercolors by Monet's friends, Signac, Rodin, mm. Monet's spectacles, his glasses. And so they started pulling these things out of the drawers, under the bed, in the basement of this most unexpected uh, building in, 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 the, in the small town outside of Paris. That was extraordinary. And, and that led to a, a wonderful sale of this collection in Hong Kong a few years ago, mm. which was basically the first sale of, of uh, dedicated to Impressionism in Hong Kong. Oh, Merry Christmas. Merry, a yeah, nice Christmas gift. Nice Christmas gift, I have to say. And, to top. and, you know, it just shows that, listen, at the end of the day, there will be instances where you will show up and it won't have been worth it. But the majority of the cases, you'll realize it is always worth mm. it. Such good advice. Is it time? I think it's time. It's I time think it's for time. the We're, bonus round? I'm ready. So I guess, Adrian, it's, we, we've reached that time. This is the bonus round portion of the podcast, which you may know, where we're going to ask you not about Christie's, not about your job, but for you, Adrian, the guy at home, to tell us, to tell our listeners a little bit about you. The real Adrian. The real Adrian How underwhelming. How underwhelming. <laughs> we, we would love it if you would share with our listeners a book that you're reading, maybe a movie that you've recently seen, a TV show, something that you have consumed, that you've watched, that you, that you really love, that maybe gives a little bit about yourself. Well, <laughs> uh, books is really not my thing. I, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it. This said, perhaps because uh, she recently passed away, I'm, I'm reading the, the wonderful memoirs of Françoise Gillot, mm. um, of her life with Picasso, mm -hmm. which is a fantastic uh, book about her, her story with the artist. And the reason why it is so, so interesting for anyone, whether you are in the art world or not, is that by reading this book, you discover the man, who Picasso mm. was, how he thought, how he painted, why he picked this color, why he chose this subject, how, how his mood evolved and how it impacted his work. Mm. Wow. It's an absolutely fascinating book. I recommend it to you both and to all our, our listeners. It's a, a terrific. What's the title? I think it's My Life with Picasso, something like that. Um, and she was an amazing woman. I, had the, I was lucky enough to know her. She lived mm. in the Upper West Side. Mm. And um, and she was an artist herself. She she, she painted until mm -hmm. you know the last days of her life. And some once in a while, I, I offered her to come to Christie's. She would come to our viewing at like I don't know ninety two, and she would walk around our exhibition. And while I thought I knew our sale inside out, you know, 
she would teach me so many things mm. about the paintings that you would see mm. with the eyes of an artist, mm. you know, saying, Kandinsky, but of course he did this. You know what? When you look at this part here, the green here, when in fact, that's why he painted it green, because if there was orange instead, it, you see, it would have clashed with the blue. And so she was sort of translating pictures mm. in a fascinating way. Wow, well, wild. And, and, you know, in our business, one of my greatest pleasures is to discover works of art which we have already been working on for some time through the eyes of our uh, collectors, of our clients who are working through galleries. Because there's always impressions and, and, and points of views and remarks which you take, which you learn so much from. Wow, that's fascinating. Another great episode. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thank you, Adrian. And everybody, if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening. And we'll see you at the next one. See you soon. <laughs>